Hello, and welcome to Hear It Now. I'm Ashley Thornburg, your guest host for today. StoryCorps is a massive undertaking collecting oral histories of people, preserving the stories of our lives, capturing the kind of everyday truth that you hear only when you're truly willing to listen. David Isay founded StoryCorps in 2003, and he joins me now. David, hello, and thank you for being on the show. Hi, Ashley. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. Well, I probably stole some of it from the last time we talked. Oh, really? No, well, it sounded, it sounded good. I like that. Now, StoryCorps, it, you aim to collect conversations between everyday people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who might not be familiar with that, what is the best way to go about recording a StoryCorps story? Well, we have, um, you know, StoryCorps started uh, nine and a half years ago, and we have these booths to travel the country where you bring a loved one to, uh, to listen to an interview, to, to record an interview um, for 40 minutes uh, where you talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, most people think of it as if I had 40 minutes left to live, what would I say or ask of this person who means so much to me with the help of a trained facilitator? And at the end of the interview, you get a copy. Another one goes to the Library of Congress so your great-great-great-great-great-grandkids could get to know your grandmother who, or whoever you brought to the booth uh, through her voice and uh, story. So we um, have these booths that travel the country. You can find out where we are at our website, storycore.org. Um, I can't remember the last time. We were in Fargo um, a couple years ago, and I'm sure that we'll be back uh, at some point before too long. But we do have booths in Chicago, New York, um, San Francisco, and Atlanta. So if folks are ever traveling there, they can, they can go there to record interviews. And if you can't get to a StoryCorps booth, you know, do it yourself. Go to our website, and um, we have instructions on how to uh, use whatever you know, equipment that you have. You and I talked at the, at the National Day of Listening. Um, which is this day to uh, record a loved one using, you know, your cell phone or whatever. And it doesn't have to be on Thanksgiving. It can be any time. And how many have you collected to date in those nine and a half years? We've done about 45,000 interviews. um, And these are the ones that are facilitated interviews with about 90,000 people because people come in pairs. So it's, I believe, the largest collection of um, of voices ever, uh, ever gathered. And hopefully we're just getting started. We hope to turn StoryCorps into a sustaining national institution that someday, you know, we hope becomes part of the fabric of this country, this idea, like you said, everyday people, regular people, your story, your parents' stories, um, neighbors, that, that these are the stories that often really matter, that there's a ton that we can learn from people all around us, the importance of listening, of recognizing that, um, our stories are as important, as interesting as the kind of celebrity stuff that we're fed, all, you know, all the time. And, and that, you know, the, the importance of stopping and, and looking a loved one in the eye and saying, who are you and what have you learned in life and how do you want to be remembered and what an empowering uh, thing that is for the people who are being listened to, how it tells them that, um, that you love them and, and that they matter. And I think that the core idea of StoryCorps um, is that um, when you get down to it is that every life Every life, every story matters and matters equally. It, it sounds a little bit daunting, though. What is the role of the facilitator in the booth? Um, it's not daunting at all. Um, the facilitator, it's, it's actually, I think, in, in almost, I don't, in, in every one of these 45,000 interviews, uh, I think it's been a successful experience for the people who come to do the taping. And, you know, the, the stories that appear, it's not about, creating a story that appears on the radio or in one of our books. It's about having this hour to talk to a loved one 
Um, and it's a f- extremely, um, I think, uh, maybe exhausting, but not stressful experience. The facilitators there to act as, um, as uh, well, they talk, they call it bearing witness. They're there to help. We're a public service, and they're help, there to help the people who've come to the booth. So they'll explain to you and whoever you've brought what the experience is going to be and bring you into the booth, and you're in this kind of a sacred space with the lights low, and uh, you have this conversation with the facilitator sitting in the corner, and there's something about those, the three people in the booth. The facilitators call it the magic of the booth. Having that third person there, the facilitator, just to jump in if you need their help, mm-hmm. to explain something or to say nothing if that's what you want. Um, but you don't have to worry about the equipment. You don't have to worry about anything except, you know, being present with the person that you're talking to. And after so many stories, like you said, 45,000 in just nine and a half years, um, safe to say really some of life's major themes just sort of tend to present themselves. And uh, notably, love, rather fitting on this, considering it is Valentine's Day. And now you have just... um, What's the best word for it? A collection of stories from yeah, StoryCorps? So, so all there is is, uh, is just out in paperback. Um, it originally came out a year ago. And it is a collection of, I don't know, 40 maybe stories of the most kind of remarkable uh, um, kind of electric stories that jump off the page of love stories that we've collected in the booth. And you're right. You know, what the nature of StoryCorps, um, the kind of interviews that happen there, people aren't talking about their, you know, their, their CV. It's not going through what their jobs were and their education. It's having these very intense conversations about the most important moments in their life. And, um, and, and because it's very much of a kind of a collection of, of, of wisdom and humanity, um, the, the themes that come up in every interview are the great themes of human existence. So it's birth and death and, you know, in almost every interview, love. Um, uh, because of of all the great theme, themes, love may be the, the the greatest theme of all. So um, this is of of all the we've done a couple of collections, and this is um, to date I think my favorite. The stories are um, well. You and I were just talking before we went on the air. They're pretty uh, remarkable. Oh, I cried at least three times reading Boy, reading your book. I'm sorry. And I was well by page three. I was already starting to tear up. Well, the thing is, is that the stories aren't, it's not that they're sad. I mean, there are some sad no. stories in the book. But I think what's happening is that it's that act of, of recognizing, I mean, they're authentically told. Um, and many of these stories are just kind of everyday people living these, um, living life to its fullest. You know, and, and when you read, you know, these authentic stories um, told for no reason except to tell someone else how much they love them, um, that, that are uh, people living these, these really full lives, you're kind of walking on holy ground. And I think there's something that um, just kind of sets people off. I know, you know, for me, obviously, since I've devoted my life to this, it's what I think are the most important and most powerful stories there are. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that, that uh, old saying, stop and smell the roses. Stop, yep. and, stop and record your story core story. <laughs> that's right. No, I think you're right. I think that, that's, a big, um, that, that, that's a big lesson I hope that people get from, from the book because... You know, some of the stories are sad, and, and you know, one of, one of the lessons, I think, is that, you know, life, that, that you never know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, and that um, in, in the same way that you want to take the time to tell people who mean something to you how much they matter to you, you know, if you can, you do want to take the time to, to, to do this interview, which also, you know, tells people how much you love them by listening to them. 
Well, let's give our listeners um, a little bit more of an example of this. I want to take a moment now to hear from Andrea and Jay McKnight, who uh, recount their story of falling in love as teenagers in the 1950s. We heard these voices, the guys singing on the corner, and this tall, dark fella was singing. He had these shades on. I was like, look at this guy. Voice was fabulous. And young as I was at the time, I think I was, what, 14? I said, nah, he's not even going to take notice of me. I was 18 going on 19 years of age. I looked at a friend of mine who I was singing with, and I said, I'm going to marry her. You know what he told me? You're going to jail. (laughs) She's too young. I said, no, I'm really going to marry her. So one day she was by herself. I said, I'm going to talk to her now. As a young guy, you drop your voice on a bridge. trying to impress. I said, hi, how you doing? Like that, you know, that's too <laughs> Which impressed. made me nervous. Yeah, was too <laughs> impressed. You remember the thing that impressed me about you? We were on the bus coming from the movies, and it started thundering and poured down rain. Getting off the bus, there was a puddle, and you took your shirt off. <laughs> yeah. And laid crazy. it down. I was finished. Yeah. Finished. You hear? We actually wanted to get married, but everybody in her family wanted to kill me. <laughs> So our parents got together and talked. It was a talk know. and a half. It, it was. You had to come you know, and speak to my grandmother. I was scared and she was <laughs> terrified, but we did get married. We did. I was no better roses to live with because I'm an entertainer. There's a lot of temptation out there when you see yeah. I mean, there's a lot. But I used to tell them, when you get as pretty as my wife, then we'll talk. Why do you think that we lasted as long as we did? We like the same things. Cowboy movies, we're crazy about them. That's the reason why things get along so well, because we have a lot in common. No, seriously. I think it's because we grew up together. Did you ever think that we would grow old together? I never thought I would ever grow old. That's to start off with. Uh, uh, People look at it sometimes and say, y'all still holding hands. That's right. Our children say that to us. Yeah, but no other woman in the world ever moved me. And I'll always love you no matter what. I think what I love about that one in particular is that that sort of combination that there's that singular moment of the knowledge that these two people are just for each other with that sort of uh, ambiguity that what what does that even mean? (laughs) And I think that that really touches on that sort of that commonality, that love. I love the line, I was finished. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, you know, it's funny because I don't, I I probably heard that clip once before in my life and it is, um, it's cool. Uh, and I think the other thing about that clip that that uh, reminds me of a lot of the stories in the book is that you know she is the serendipity piece of it. How um, you know the, the the stars aligned on that one day, and there they were, and it just happened. And also the fact that um, you know that a lot of that that in many ways I think what we're reading about in these books are um, are, are wisdom about successful relationships, and there are a lot of lessons to be learned by all sorts of people who've managed to kind of struggle through and, um, and see through relationships about how, how you know, we all can, can um, what, what we all need to do to, um, to have a, uh, a successful relationships and successful marriages. I think of this um, 85-year-old guy, in the, I think the shortest story in the, in the book, who, um, who after they got married, I think right at, after World War II, they took a, a trip to Philadelphia and they saw a roadside sign that said, um, for a successful marriage, there are six things you always have to say to your loved one. You look great. Can I help you? Can I help? Let's eat out. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I love you. <laughs> and those six rules guided their marriage for 53 years, two months and five days until um, 
Leroy Morgan's uh, wife died. So there's great wisdom to be called from these stories, uh, other than just the kind of uh, poetic, beautiful, and, and electric love stories that are in the book. Never underestimate those universal truths. Yep, it's true. Sometimes it, you know that. Sometimes it's that boiled down stuff that where you really find the um, the, the truth of life. You're absolutely right, Ashley. Um, in the next, uh, in quick about twenty seconds here, what's uh, coming up for the future of StoryCorps? Well, we uh, a lot. We were about to celebrate our tenth anniversary, so hopefully, I'll be talking to you around then with our next um, with our next book, and and I'll be traveling across the country talking about StoryCorps. We're working really hard, as I said, to create a national institution that um, really weaves the ideas, the core ideas of StoryCorps into the fabric of this country. The, um, you know, the power and poetry and the words of everyday people and the importance of listening. Um, we're doing a lot of stuff. We have a program now called StoryCorps U, which is a year-long um, uh, program in, in some of the toughest schools in the country where we're using StoryCorps content and teaching the StoryCorps method to connect, connect kids to their teachers and schools. And that's proving to be incredibly successful, and I'm excited about that. We just launched an initiative for families who have a loved one or are um, serving in post-9-11 conflicts. Uh, so that's called the Military Voices Initiative. And we have other initiatives on the way and other books and animations and more StoryCorps, more good stuff. Um, I think we're at the very, very beginning of a long game with StoryCorps. We're in like the first inning. Um, there's a lot more work to do, but it's work that infuses us all with such passion and and excitement um, and certainty that, that what we're doing is the right thing and that what we're doing makes people's lives better and happier. So much more to come and hopefully many more conversations with you. I'm so grateful that um, Here It Now has had us on so often. Thank oh, you. Oh, so well, much. we love it too. And just very quickly, where can people get a copy of the book? Um, well, you can go to your local independent bookstore, always. Um, but um, otherwise, you can find it on the web. You can find it anywhere. It's a New York Times bestseller. Um, and every penny of um, profit from the book goes back to StoryCorps so that we can do uh, more uh, interviews with more people across the country, give more people the experience of, of recognizing how much their lives matter. All right. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Ashley. We'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to it. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Coming up next, retired? Why not start a band? It worked for our next guests. Support for this program is provided by the North Dakota Education Association, an organization of 8,000 school employees working to ensure great public schools for every child. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with a This Old House Hour, then at 8 Central, Doc Martin, and at 9, The Aviators, followed at 9.30 by Bluegrass Underground. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. Welcome back to Hear It Now. I'm Ashley Thornburg, your guest host for today, this Valentine's Day. And normally we think about couples on this day. Well, how about a couple of friends who share a great love of music? 
Call it platonic love in perfect harmony. Marcus Schneider and Gloria Allig live at Riverview Place. It's an independent and assisted living center in South Fargo. For them, retirement is anything but slow. They've got weekly rehearsals and shows to fill. And I got a chance to talk with them before one of their rehearsals. Mark and I are just two residents of the Riverview Place. He was playing the keyboard all by himself when I when I first heard him, and I thought, "Gosh, that sounds so, so good," you know. And I and I haven't played the sex in hundred hundred years. In forty years, I thought, "Gee, it'd be fun to be fun to." Be tell, though she's still pretty good. <laughs> I thought it would be fun then, to see if I still knew those songs. Yeah. So my horn was kind of over what my one son said, "Mother, why don't we re- get this horn reconditioned?" did play a, about with three different bands and the last ones I played with uh, we were pretty steady until I retired from the orchestra because I was working a full-time job sometimes 10 hours a day and then playing two or three times a week it's got to be a little bit too much. We got married in 1946, and uh, about three months later, I started with the orchestra. I don't know. <laughs> For a while, the wife didn't like that idea because I was uh, gone day and night. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. 46 till 56, I was with uh, two different groups, and then mm. from 56 until about uh, 67, 68, we had a four-piece group that was. We mm. were very popular. We called ourselves the Blue Rhythm Orchestra. (laughs) And uh, they're all gone but me now. Just last year, I think, I lost my guitar player. daughters uh, live here so I have just two daughters and uh, they wanted us close instead of coming to Bismarck every time we had a headache or something <laughs> they wanted us close but uh, I did lose my wife uh, January of uh, 2011 we if she'd lasted three more weeks we would have been married 65 years So I've been doing that for, uh, well, I started when I was about 15 or 16 with my mother and dad who had a little dance band. We lived north of uh, Jamestown in a little town, Kensal, 
and we played for dances in that area when one day when I when I was about fifteen, all the players went to the service. It was during the war. Yeah, and there was no nobody to play, and my mother said. Gloria, you're going to come and sit in tonight, and uh, you're going to try this out. So I was 15 and green, so I I did, and I I think I did it ever since, ever after that. I'm not from Michigan. I grew up in Bismarck, and I raised my family in Grand Forks. I like music, not what I consider noise. I realize that music is basically noise, but I want something that has a melody. They play music and selections from back when I used to dance, and it brings back very fond memories. And I often pick up my mail on the way down, and I'll just sit in the activity room and go through my mail and fill out all the forms for Publishers Clearinghouse and and get that out and back in so that I get my million-plus dollars. I'm hoping for that maybe the next draw. I think you started out on the accordion, didn't you? I played accordion when I was 12 years old. Yeah, he's uh, he's very good at that, too. <laughs> he doesn't do that much anymore. You don't. Well, I'd like to, but uh, yeah. that accordion is 62 pounds, and the keyboard you just play. <laughs> yeah, he's very good. Like you say, he can play in any key. If it's the wrong key for me in the, on the sax, he switches. <laughs> Once in a while, he gets real fancy on the keyboard and really does it upright. <laughs> No, he's wonderful. Thank you very much. Yes. I appreciate the compliments. It's the first good compliment I had all year. Oh, really? Oh, golly. <laughs> she knows a lot of songs, that, you know, with vocals. She does the vocals. Yeah, I like to sing, and too. I'm in the background. <laughs> yeah. I'd give up a palace if I were a king. It's more than a palace when I went to Jamestown College, in the, well, there was one summer, I went down to the radio station and asked if they could use a, a little a singer for a program. So I got a 15-minute program on the radio at uh, Jamestown, Gloria Sings. her vocals Gloria is legally blind but yet she has so much talent when it comes to music and it is all by memory you can't blame me for feeling I'm Bonnie Peters director of marketing and resident relations both of them lived in E building and so they nicknamed their duo E flats <laughs> They started playing and soon became the favorite entertainment at Riverview Place. 
I didn't expect to be playing <laughs> very much <laughs> after I retired, but... I didn't think I was going to play at all. This is entirely <laughs> new for me. I think all our illnesses go away. Some days I can come down and I think, oh, I don't really feel like playing. But after we play a little while, you begin to feel good. <laughs> Brings out the best, I guess. You can check out some photos of Marcus and Gloria. They are online on Prairie Public's Facebook page. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and I'm joined now by Kevin Sorbo. You know him in Hercules. Uh, you know him as uh, Andromeda, the, the series, the Gene Roddenberry series, and uh, the feature film Cull the Conqueror. Well, uh, he's also got a bit of an upper Midwest connection because he's, he's from Mound, Minnesota, and he attended Minnesota State University Moorhead a while back. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. I attended it when it was just good old Moorhead State University. They didn't have those other names added to it. Yep, I, we're dragons from Moorhead State. Good to know that. Uh, Kevin. That is true. You're coming to town to uh, help Moorhead State's uh, Founders Scholarship Gala. They're going to raise some money for scholarships, and that's very nice of you to do. That is Friday the 15th of February, and it's at the Center for the Arts on the campus of Moorhead State. What are you going to tell people? Uh, you know what? They, they just kind of want me to just sort of go back on the days I had there at Moorhead State and tell a few stories, a few anecdotes, and talk about, uh, you know, how, how wonderful the university was for me and uh, just the good memories I had being there. Well, uh, we did meet each other about uh, 10 years ago, I guess, when you were on campus. Uh, you were meeting with students and giving them all kinds of candid answers to their pointed questions about what it's like to be a star and what it's like to be a producer and to be involved in day-to-day -day, uh, production of something that's really big, like Hercules, the legendary journey, and that kind of thing. And you were you were just great with them. That's, uh, I just wanted to say well, that. Well, 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 thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, actually, I'm going to be there again, I think, on the... Uh uh, before the big event, the big gala on the 15th, um, I'm going to be there at 11 o'clock at the, uh, what is it, the Gaty stage there at, yes. uh, at the Center for the Arts. And I'll, it's open to the public, and I'll be talking to, you know, whoever wants to come and talk. But a lot of the drama students will be there, of course. And I'm more than happy to tell them the uh, wonderfulness and horrors of Hollywood. <laughs> well, it's very useful to have that kind of professional interplay with students who are interested in that uh, that kind of uh, discipline. Uh, but let's talk about what was actually happening in your life when you were there 10 years ago. I didn't realize when you were there that you had experienced a stroke a few years earlier. Uh, what happened? I, actually, I experienced three strokes, actually. I, uh, it was between seasons five and six on Hercules. I shot Hercules down in New Zealand. I lived down there from 1993 until the end of 99, so I was there for almost seven years. And uh, between seasons five and six, I was going to be coming back to America, to Atlanta, to shoot a movie for Universal Studios. And the three months leading up to that hiatus down in New Zealand, I kept having problems with my left shoulder, and it was just driving me crazy. And my fingers were getting cold and tingly. I couldn't figure what was going on. When I finally got back to L.A., I went and saw my doctor, and he found a lump in my left shoulder. And he said he wanted to do a biopsy, and, of course, that sort of freaked me out. But before he had a chance to do that biopsy, uh, the darn thing, uh, that lump ended up being an aneurysm, mm. and it opened up and sent hundreds and hundreds of clots, not only in my arm, but three of the clots went into my 
to my brain where I suffered three strokes. Two went to my balance center, one went to my vision. I still have a 10% loss of vision in both eyes. And uh, the strokes, uh, you know, the, the, the balance center was completely compromised. I, I looked like a drunken man trying to walk around. So I went from a guy that was pretty fit playing Hercules to a guy that couldn't even stand up. And I, I went through the next four months of, uh, you know, dropping out of the movie, of course, and doing, going through rehab and learning to balance and walk again. And then when I got down to New Zealand, I went from a 14-hour workday down to one-hour day. Uh, and each month added another hour. I slowly worked it back up to about eight or nine hours a day at the end of season seven, which is two years after the strokes. Wow. But it took me three years to fully recover. But yeah, they kept it quiet. The studio kept it quiet. They didn't want people to know about it. And in today's uh, media world, that wouldn't have happened. Now, that is amazing. It might, maybe it helped that you were in New Zealand uh, to have the production because it's it's amazing that we didn't hear about it. You know what? It, there's no question that the the... the the solitude of New Zealand was was beneficial to me. I mean, the only thing that they let out and they knew about was that I had an aneurysm, and they reported on Access Hollywood and you know all the cable outlets. And everybody was talking about it and ET, but uh, they only said that I had an aneurysm. It was kept out of the papers about what had actually happened to me. And I finally, years after my wife bugging me to do it, saying, "Look, you got a great story about recovery here. Um, you should write it." So I finally wrote the book, and the hardcover came out a year ago. The paperbacks just come out now, and it's interesting with the paperback. I've been getting a lot more press and a lot more uh, interest since uh, I've been doing all this press on it. So it's, it's, been, it's been very nice and rewarding. I've been speaking a lot at hospitals, neurological institutes, and bookstores all across the country. And uh, it's, it's been amazing to see people's response. The name of the book is Truth Strength, My Journey from Hercules to Mere Mortal and How Nearly Dying Saved My Life, an intriguing title. And I, I, I picked out one quote that uh, kind of jumped off the page to me, and I, I went up on Amazon and, and uh, you know, looked in on pages here and there. Uh, Fear is an extraordinary artist, stimulating the mind to reminisce as if to divine where fairy tale meets horror novel. Through it all, I couldn't help but think, what did I do to deserve this? Talk about the recovery. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, here I was playing Hercules, um, Feeling pretty fit, feeling on top of the world. We had just passed Baywatch a year earlier as the most watched TV show in the world. I just had done my first major motion picture. I was the guy that Universal was sort of gearing up to replace Arnold Schwarzenegger as the next big action guy. And uh, all of a sudden, all it came to a halt. And talk about, you know, an ego check and a reality check and, you know, what really is important in your life. You know, I, mean, I love what I'm doing. I love acting. But, uh, you know, family, friends, health are far more important than anything else in this life. And... Uh, you know, I didn't have like an ego about myself, but I was, you know, I was enjoying things. I was, I was working hard. Uh, everything was committed to the to the series. I was putting in uh, 14-hour days. I was lifting weights two hours a day. I mean, my, I only was, I was living off four, four and a half hours of sleep a night, which is insane. After five years, I think my body just caught up to itself and said, "You can't do live like this anymore." And it was a long, it was a long road. Um, my fiance, who was my wife to this day at the time, she could have walked away. We were four months from being married when the strokes happened, wow. and she got the worst part. She got the worst part of for better or worse before we even said those lines. So it was, uh, you know, it was tough. It wasn't easy, and she stuck by my side. She pretty much put all of her career and life on hold. And uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to have the recovery I did. I pushed myself really hard. Hence, the title of the book is True Strength. It's sort of a play on words where Hercules. Uh, there was nothing true about his strength. I was a, a big, strong guy, but I had a lot of stunt guys making me look pretty good. <laughs> and, and um, you know, it's really finding the true strength within yourself because we're all going to hit that road. We don't know what that road's going to be or when it's going to be, but whether it's a cancer, heart problems, 
stroke, car accident, whatever it may be, we're going to hit a road that we're not ready for. It's how do you react to that road? Because initially, of course, I think you go through the stages of why me, the anger, pointing fingers. You know, the reality is just look in the mirror. It happened, and you have to accept it, and you have to find a way to move past it. Well, this is a, one way to kind of help people uh, maybe be aware of the kinds of symptoms that uh, they might experience if they are going to have a stroke or experiencing a stroke. And, and lots of people do. This is a very common uh, health event, unfortunately. I, I was Googling you know, you're right. Yeah. And, and I came across FAST, FAST, uh, an acronym for what you need to know about a stroke. And it's uh, F for face. Your uh, face starts to droop. Arm is the A, and that's if it uh, get, loses a little strength. S is for speech. Do you start slurring your speech? And T is if those things are happening, it's time to dial 911. Very true. You know, and I, I just, uh, I was in total denial. You know, I couldn't believe what was happening to me. I knew something horrific was happening. I, I just remember uh, being brought to the hospital and um, uh, leaning on my, my fiance Sam at the time. I was just, I mean, Paul, my weight was on her. I couldn't barely even stand. And I just thought, my God, I'm going to die today. And I was actually surprised how calm I was about it, but I think my body had just said, well, what are you going to do? You know, yeah. there's not much you can do at this point. And uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was tough. And I went through a, a period of, of, you know, you feel like there was a death in the family. That's what it felt like. It felt like somebody that, I, that was close to me had passed away, and I realized I'd never be the same person I was before. And, uh, you know, you just, it, it, it's finding, I'm a very strong-willed guy because the neurologist told me after eight months, whatever you're feeling, on average, it's pretty much what you have to deal with the rest of your life. It's just, that's just the way it is. Well, after eight months, I still wasn't doing very well. And I said, there's no way these guys are right. There's no way I'm going to live my life like this and with the dizzy spells, the vertigo, the, the feeling like I'm falling over all the time, uh, balance issues and all. I said, there's just no way. I said, I mean, I want a career. I want to keep going. I'm not done. And uh, thank God, you know, Universal Studios kept the show going. They wanted to keep it going, obviously, because it was making them a lot of money. Yeah. But it, it gave me hope. It gave me, oh, yeah, you want to pretend like studios care about their actors, but they really don't. <laughs> the bottom line is it's a business, you know. So they discard you as quickly as they want to give you a hug. Do you still live with any, uh, you know, uh, anxiety about possibly having another? Well, you know, I, it's, initially I did because the doctors couldn't give me any guarantee it won't happen again. They couldn't figure out why the aneurysm was there in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, they said it could have been something since birth, a weakening of the artery there, and it just took all those years in my 30s to finally you know, manifest itself. It could have been uh, you know, hereditary. It could have been the stress of the show I was doing. Uh, even though I enjoyed what I was doing and loved what I was doing, they're still, you know, they're still, you're still stressed. But I, was, you know, my body, I felt like I was used to it and into it. But um, you know, stress does amazing things to people's bodies and not in a good way. Uh, it could have been all the years lifting weights. I mean, they, they've proven that people, you know, who, who lift weights a lot, and I was lifting heavy and a lot since I was, you know, in high school. So here I was 20, 20 years later still bumping iron the way I did in school. So, uh, you know, it could have, been, could have been that. They don't know. So, of course, you live with that fear of, my gosh, it could happen at any time. But then at the same time, you know, living in fear all the time is not a good way to go either. So I just, you know, I, I got used to it. I went through panic anxiety attacks. I went through all kinds of stuff during those first, that first year. Uh, it was it was it was weird. It was hard for me to handle. But uh, you know, through the the book is every bit of a love story as it is anything else. And uh, you know, people I think they'll 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 like what's in there. So far, it's been an amazing response from people from all walks of life saying it's motivated them to work harder again with whatever illness they're doing. And the biggest thing is, you know, what I what I preach in the book is don't let other people set your limitations because we all do that, whether you're healthy or not. You know, people say, oh, you can't do this, you shouldn't do that. 
coming from you know your parents, your family members, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, doctors, whatever. Well, you know what? Don't let other people set your limitations. Push yourself. Push yourself. Push yourself. And it isn't easy. It's it's a tough road. But where do you want to be? Do you want to be where you are now, or do you want to be in a better place? Well, that raises a question because when this happened. Uh a lot of stuff was set to happen for you. And matter of fact, you mentioned you got married. You also had three kids. So this is sort of a, an important uh, benchmark, I guess, in your life. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I, I did get, I mean, I always wanted kids. And luckily I had the recovery I had. I did get married. And I, I've got three kids. I've got 11 and 8-year-old boys. And I've got a 7-year-old girl. And they're, they're great. And you've got an organization laugh. called a World Fit for Kids that you represent? I've been doing that. Uh, I actually signed on to do that just before I got sick, and I've been doing it for 16 years now. I'm the spokesperson and chair for World Fit for Kids. We're the number one after-school program in the state of California, and uh, we're trying to go nationwide with it. We work with over 12,000 kids in 12 schools from first grade through uh, 12th grade, and L.A. County has a one of the worst dropout rates in the country. Uh, 54% of students drop out between 5th grade and 12th grade, and the 12,000 kids we work with in that same school district, we have a 98% graduation rate and a 67% higher GPA. Because uh, we offer these kids real hope. We offer these kids, you know, with the physical fitness, uh, childhood obesity, mentoring, uh, you know, to help with all their scholastics, help with preparation for the real world beyond school. And it's a wonderful program that should be in every school district across this country. And I go to D.C. once a year and try to slap those bozos up to say, guys, look at the record we have here. Why are we not doing this everywhere? All right. Well, let's talk now about uh, your career. I've shot over 40 movies in the last seven years. I've got uh, five or six in the can coming out. One just came out called Abel's Field through Sony Studios. Uh, it's sort of a modern-day Cain and Abel meets Friday Night Lights. You can check it out right now. Just go to abelsfield.com. It's at, uh, on Amazon. It's um at uh, Walmart. It's a great family movie, and uh, I think people enjoy it. Another movie called What If. Uh, please go to the, the whatifmovie.com. And uh, then I have uh, a Western coming out in Hallmark March 23rd. It'll air a number of times, but the, the, the premieres March 23rd on the Hallmark channel called Shadow on the Mesa with Greg Evigan. People remember him from sure. BJ and the Bear and Gail O'Grady. Gail O'Grady's done tons of work, wonderful, beautiful lady to work with, and um, I've got a couple other movies lined up ready to shoot here now, and I've got a new TV series that looks like it might get a good go, so we'll, I'll find a lot in the next next month what's happening with that. Well, when I go up on your website, I can see all kinds of activity. I mean, you've got a little grid up there of the stuff that's uh, in production, when it's going to be released. You are a busy guy. Yeah. Growth industry, it seems. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I mean, I've started my own production company about six years ago, and I've helped raise money for things. I just finished a movie called um, God's Not Dead. And it'll be in theaters coming out in not till uh, September. But it was a wonderful movie shot down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, the highlight for me was I got invited to sit, stand on the sidelines and watch the LSU Alabama game. So that was, that was pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> and uh, but um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to keep going. And I'm, I've been doing you know it's a mixture of things. And I've got a movie coming out called Julia X where I played a serial killer. So that was a little bit different for for what I normally go into, but I, I couldn't uh, turn down the script. It was too interesting of a character to play. But, you know, I, I, I mix it up mostly with, I like the family movies, I like the comedies and things like that, and that's kind of where my aim is right now. Well, you were sort of, uh, you know, a pigeonholed as a, as, a, as a He-Man for so many years, so now you are getting a lot of variety, huh? 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I mean, you know, you're right, between Hercules and Andromeda, both those guys were, were action guys. They were different in the way that, you know, my character, Captain Dylan Hunt, Andromeda could actually die, you know, so there's a little more drama built in there. <laughs> okay. But Hercules, Hercules certainly had a lot more humor, tongue-in-cheek, and I think that's why people loved it so much because they could see how much fun we're having in the show. It was, it was a wonderful, um, you know, chapter of my life, and I, I loved it down there. And people should go to New Zealand if they get a chance because New Zealand is a phenomenal, beautiful country and great people. Now, the question I forgot to ask is, how did you break in in the first place? You know, I I wanted to be an actor since I was 11. You know, I grew up down there in a little town called Mound, Minnesota, just west of Minneapolis in the shores of Lake Minnetonka. We were, our, our claim to fame was Tonka Toys. That's where the company was based. <laughs> yep. And um, we, uh, you know, I, I just made the move. I went out there. I didn't know a soul. Uh, you know, so I tell people, follow your dreams. You know, you, you can be anything you want to be. It's just You just have to work. And a lot of people are afraid of failure. A lot of people are afraid of putting in hard work, and that's why they get stagnant in their lives. And it's like, you know what? Change is a good thing, guys. And But, you know, it's human nature. We're, we sort of fear change even though we want it. And the thing is you just got to take those steps. you got to be brave and go for it. And that's what I did. I moved out there, didn't know a soul. I just went out, and I hit the pavement. Well, again, you're going to be here in town. For the Founders Scholarship Gala, it'll be held at the uh, Minnesota State University Moorhead Comstock Memorial Union. It's Friday, February 15th from 5.30 to 11 p.m. You also are offering a very intriguing item for the silent auction, movie extra in a Kevin Sorbo film. Win a once-in-a-lifetime chance to be an extra in an upcoming Kevin Sorbo movie. Specific movie dates and location are yet to be determined. Value priceless donated by Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, I mean, it'll be nice. You know, they get the, well, we're, you know, like I said, we've got two movies lined up. Just have the dates locked in yet. And uh, I'm pretty sure one's in North Carolina. The other one's going to be in Louisiana. So they got you know, get a nice little trip and uh, hang out in the set and see what's, you know, see what's like to watch, uh, you know, hurry up and wait of, of Hollywood. <laughs> so... Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. I appreciate it. And please have your uh, listeners, I mean, follow me on kevinsorbo.net for updated information and on Twitter at ksorbs, K-S-O-R-B-S. Will do. And pick up the book, True Strength, My Journey from Hercules to Mere Mortal and How Nearly Dying Saved My Life by Kevin Sorbo. Thanks a lot. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. And now for a look at what's happening. There are certainly a lot of events going around uh, this area. For starters, it is still Giving Hearts Day, and that means you still have the time to go online and have your donation to your choice of qualifying nonprofits matched. You can log on to impactgiveback.org to browse more than 170 charities. Donations are matched today only, and it ends at 11.59 p.m. In Valley City, the Whoever Can Come Band will be having another free and open-to-all jam session at the Barnes County Museum Saturday, February 16th from 1 to 4. Everyone is welcome to play whatever they can. Come and laugh with the Concordia College Theater over Valentine's weekend. The college presents Boeing, Boeing, um, the 14th through the 16th at 8 p.m. and the 17th at 2 p.m., and that's at the Francis Fraser Comstock Theater. It is a 1960s-era farce about uh, stereotypes and insincere marriage proposals. Apparently, three engagements with three women, but just one math all working for Boeing, and they get stranded together. So you do the math there. What's going to happen? Tickets are $7 for adults, $4 for students and seniors, and it's free for Concordia students, faculty, and staff. 
Plenty of fun to be had for anyone who likes cold temps. I'm not really in that camp. But if you are, there is the annual fishing derby, host ice fishing derby, hosted by the Jamestown Rural Fire Department. To get the rules, head over to the Knights of Columbus Friday at 7 o'clock, and the fishing will be Saturday from 1 to 4 in the afternoon at Pelican Point. Awards and a drawing to be held at 8 p.m. And Shiver Fest, it's this weekend in Devil's Lake, February 15th through the 17th. Weekend, um, weekend-long events, including... Tournaments for both hockey and curling. There's also ice golfing. I, I don't know what that is, but I'm very intrigued. There's kite flying, sleigh rides, ice fishing. That's all this weekend in Devil's Lake. More hockey this time. It's the Bismarck Bobcats versus Aberdeen. That's Friday the 15th at 7.15 at the VFW Sports Arena in Bismarck. Tickets are 8 to $16. If there's any poets out there, the High Plains Writers, based in South Dakota, is holding its annual poetry contest, and uh, the submission deadline is April 15th. If you have a poem, 50 lines or less, send it to jwalker at rcplib.org. And my event of the week is the 16th annual Celebration of Women and Their Music. This is to recognize artistic passion in women and create opportunities for emerging and established artists. This has a few events during the week, all leading up to the main event on Saturday. You can check out a pre-show tonight at the Listening Room in Fargo with Raining Jane playing from 7 to 8.30 and Haley E. and the Rydells playing from 8.30 to 11. Tickets are $10 and age 21+. plus. The main event is on Saturday at 6.30 at the Fargo Theater. A whole host of performers here, Amanda Standalone, and the Pastry Shop Girls, Chance and Seas. They are coming up from Minneapolis. There's Boston-based Hannah Christensen. Uh, Chris Kitko is coming from Bismarck. Raining Jane coming from L.A. And uh, Callie Adamson and Little Winter are Fargo-Moorhead-based band. That is a look at what's happening. Uh, Dakota Daybook is next. Support for this program is provided by Basin Electric Power Cooperative of Bismarck, producing reliable electricity. Basin Electric operates generation stations in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming, including wind farms in North and South Dakota. This is Dakota Datebook for February 14th. A terrible fire destroyed the Krem Roller Mill on this date in 1906. Although little remains of the town today, Krem was once the largest and most progressive town in Mercer County. Much of the town's commercial success, however, was the result of its large flour mill. Losing the mill was the beginning of the end for the North Dakota Prairie Town. In the 1880s, immigrants flooded into Mercer County, eager to take advantage of the Homestead Act. Three out of every four were of German heritage, coming from the areas of southern Russia. The majority of these Germans from Russia took up farming, but found it difficult to transport farm products to the Missouri River for sale and transport. They also found it difficult to file papers and conduct business in Stanton, the county seat, which was located on the far eastern edge of the county. Some county residents were forced to travel as long as two or three days to reach the far-flung county seat. In order to alleviate the burden, many settlers proposed the creation of a central market and seat of government. In 1888, Carl Simler established a new town site near his farm north of Hazen. Centrally located, Semler named the town Krem, after the Crimean homeland of many of the area's settlers. 
Semler was able to lure investors to build a large flour mill on the site, enabling local farmers to bring their wheat directly to the mill. Mill owners also hoped that the future rail line from Mandan to Kildare would run through Krem, giving their newly ground flour a way to reach larger markets. The large four-story roller mill could grind 50 bushels a day, powered by steam produced from local lignite coal. With its 24-hour schedule, however, the mill frequently ran out of fuel and was forced to use straw instead, although straw created sparks. In February of 1906, straw sparks led to a fire that quickly burned the mill to the ground. Although quickly rebuilt, the cost created a strain on the mill's owners. When the railroad decided to lay its line through Hazen rather than Krem seven years later, most of the town's businesses and residents relocated. By 1940, the town of Krem was one more prairie ghost town. Today's Dakota Daybook was written by Jamie Job. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. That's all for this edition of Here It Now. Coming up tomorrow on Here It Now, it's been about a year since Marilyn Haggerty went viral. We'll talk to her about what's in her future and involves a stage show with our very own Meryl Pepcorn. The very talented Rosie Savageo recently won the Miss North Dakota title, but long before that, she wowed the audience at the celebration of women and their music. And now she's on the board. She'll be stopping by with more on this year's show. We'll have a news roundup with uh, Dave Thompson, and we're off to the movies with Matt. That is all coming up tomorrow on Here It Now. Thanks for listening, and have a great night. In tonight's forecast, partly to mostly cloudy skies, a chance of flurry central, lows 7 below in the northeast to 15 above zero far south. Your Friday is looking to be partly cloudy, highs 10 in the northeast to near 30 degrees southwest. And Friday night becoming cloudy with a chance of snow west and central, partly cloudy east, lows 5 below zero in the east to 20 above in the southeast. That's your weather from member-supported Prairie Public coming up next hour, All Things Considered. This is Prairie Public in partnership with the University of